0: Unwrap your gift now, but pay later. Right now at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Put no money down, no payment, and no interest for up to 18 months. Our elves work year-round, installing in as little as a day. Offer ends December 31st. Visit PellaWI.com. Jeff Wagner's 25-year career at WTMJ comes to an end. For the rest of the year, dive back in the archives with us as we bring you the best of Jeff Wagner throughout his career. You're listening to The Best of Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Ladies and gentlemen, it
1: is my very great pleasure to introduce the governor of the state of Wisconsin, Scott Walker, Governor Walker. Great to be with you. Thanks, everybody. Nice crowd out here. Yeah. Thanks, guys. And, and we didn't even give him liquor, you know? That's <laughs> pretty just, good. Didn't even give him liquor. Okay, Governor, before we get into the substance of the interview, let, let's start off. Let, let's, let's make a little bit of news. There's been... A lot, of issue, a lot of controversy over the last week with regard to special elections to fill a vacant Senate seat and a vacant Assembly seat. Your original plan was, let's just let this play out till the November elections. Dane County judge ordered you to call special elections. There was talk about maybe a legislative solution or an
2: appeal. What's going on? Uh, well, tomorrow morning I'm going to call a special election. It'll be for June 12th for a special election to fill a vacancy in the State Assembly and the State Senate. We went through the legal process going forward, and it is amazing. How far out-of-state liberals will go to push a meaningless process that's a waste of the taxpayers' money. But that should be a reminder to everyone, is if you want people who push meaningless things that cost the taxpayers' money, go along with Eric Holder and the liberal Democrats who are pushing their agenda in this state. If you want people who are actually going to save your taxpayers' money and spend it on things that mean something, then stick with Republicans. But going forward, I mean, think about this, Jeff. So we're going to call it, the election will be on June 12th. People will have from tomorrow... Until April 17th to circulate nomination papers. On April 15th, people running this fall for the state assembly, for the state senate, and statewide office will be taking out nomination papers from April 15th and they'll be due June 1st. Two days before nomination papers are due for the special election, people will be taking them out for the fall. And the special election will be held 12 days after nomination papers are due for the fall. So people will be running for a spot at the same time, they'll be running for the fall election. That's why this is meaningless. The legislature will be adjourned. It is a waste of the taxpayers' money. And, frankly, if I live in those districts, I'd say forget about running in the special. Let's just focus on the fall when it actually means something, because that's when people are coming out. But I know they'll contest in both cases.
1: I was reading some of the national publications. Here's Governor Walker, again, trying to deny 200,000 people or whatever the right to
2: representation.
1: Nothing to that.
2: No, I mean, the irony is, so the legislature is done with their business. The only thing they were considering was whether they'll come back or not, and I suppose they could, but by next week, at the latest, they'll be done. So by the time the election is held in June 12th, not only will they be done after several months, June 12th will be two months after the nomination papers are due for the special election, and two months after, they already started taking out nomination papers for the fall elections. So you're going to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on special elections in two different districts in two different parts of the state of Wisconsin so those people can turn around and run for the real thing in the fall.
1: Bottom line of it, the law is a mess, right? And it does yeah, need to be cleared the, up, right? Well,
2: and that's the part, right. It set aside whether, whether your politics are one way or the other. When I was in the assembly, and you mentioned the introduction, the old date used to be June 1st was the first day that you could take out nomination papers for state offices, and you'd have until the middle of July to get them in and and turn them in. For whatever reason, years later, the legislature moved that back to April 15th, Uh, So they finished their calendar before that. They were due by June 1st. And for whatever reason at the time they made that change, they didn't correct that date that tied in that the judge pointed to, and you can disagree on that. I'm not into uh, commenting on the judge one way or the other. But I said, you can look at that date, but the reality is they didn't adjust it when they moved everything back. They didn't move the date for the special election back. So that's why you're stuck in this quagmire. The, The reason they had that was they thought if you were having a vacancy before a certain time, you should fill it. But in this case it's missing the boat because the legislature's long gone by that point.
1: I mean, let's let's look back at the last Eight years, the, the accomplishments and may, maybe some of the, the tough times as well. Um, obviously, I think when people think of Scott Walker, we think of Act 10. Um, has Act 10 been a
2: success? Huge success. Now we have a reform dividend in this state because of what we had the courage to do, and I say we, because it wasn't just me. It was a lot of lawmakers in both the Assembly and the Senate, those in the past, and I see a few in this room with me here today, and a few others have joined us along the way, who had the courage. Not just for the state, but I was once a local official. I I remember the angst I had. remember eight years ago when I was running for governor, Jim Doyle and the Democrats in the the state legislature cut money for schools. They cut money for municipalities. They cut money for the county government I was in, and they gave us absolutely no tools to deal with it. We've empowered local governments, and I only have the tools that have saved state and local government more than $5 billion since then. But more importantly, our schools, our local, and our state governments can now hire and fire based on merit. They can pay based on performance. That means they can put the best and the brightest in the classroom and in local and state government offices. And that's exactly what we do to succeed anywhere outside of government. We should have been doing that for years in local and state government as well. So it's been a huge success just in that regard. But on top of that, those reforms have paid such a dividend uh, both on economic and fiscal reforms we've enacted beyond just Act ten that we've had we've gone from a three point six billion dollar budget deficit to having a budget surplus every single year we've been in office. It's why we've been able to reduce your tax burden cumulatively by more than eight billion dollars through the end of this budget and still put record amounts of actual dollars into K through twelve education and other key priorities because the reforms are working. The concerns,
1: when Act 10 was being introduced and debated, was that this was going to decimate public services, the public education system, As we look back now seven years later, did that happen?
2: Not by a long shot. I mean, look at it. Our, Our schools continue, our students continue to have some of the best ACT scores in the country. We continue to be one of the top states in the nation for graduation rates. We wanted to make sure that every child in the state had access to great education. That's exactly what the case is here in the state of Wisconsin. We're one of the best states in America for education. The difference is, as Republicans, we actually believe if you spend money on education, it actually should be tied to performance, not just pouring more money into political causes and educational bureaucracy. Do you think that message has gotten out? Well, I I think it has to many. I mean, the challenge you get in this state, uh, I think overall, and that's why I think in this election, that uh, as much as we've advanced in technology, I think this November, personal contact is going to have a larger impact than it's had in the last 25 years. And the reason I say that is I think a lot of people in society don't know what to believe anymore. And it's not just, you know, the president talks about fake news. I think it's across the political spectrum. On the Internet in particular, I tell my kids who are in their 20s now all the time, do not believe everything you read on the Internet, you know, on Facebook and Twitter Your dad and really
1: does not have horns and a tail. Right, exactly.
2: Know? Well, and even just on stuff you might believe, I mean, you might hear from people you might believe in, check and verify things all the time. And that's why I think personal contact uh, with voters is going to make such an incredible difference because I'm always surprised, not just when we talk about Act 10 and education, but think about it we announced last week unemployment's down to 2.9 percent that's the lowest in the history of the state of wisconsin We've got more people unemployed in the state than ever before. We're a top ten state for low unemployment. We're a top five state for the percentage of people in the workforce. Uh, We've health care systems in the state that are ranked number one in the nation for quality. When we transition more than twenty-five thousand people off of food stamps into the workforce, that's a pretty amazing record. But you, about half the electorate doesn't believe that's true, even those are just, those are basic black and white facts. And, and so we just live at a time in an era where not just here but across the nation, I think one of our biggest challenges. Just to set aside politics is just how do we have meaningful conversations uh, about issues if we don't even agree on what the facts are, let alone the interpretation of those.
3: Jeff Wagner, Paul Ryan here. Hey, congratulations. 25 years at TMJ. That's amazing. It seems like yesterday you were just running for attorney general and just getting started in this job. Look, I just want to say this. Jeff Wagner has been a voice of reason, a soothing voice in a respite. For people in the afternoons in all of southeastern Wisconsin for a quarter of a century, we're going to miss you. We're going to miss who you are, how you sound, and what you've done uh, for all of us in our community. And take it from me, retirement's a pretty cool thing because there's all these other things you can do with your life.
1: I'm excited for you. Thank you, and God bless. We're back, joined once again by the governor of the state of Wisconsin, Scott Walker. Governor, when you took over, the unemployment rate in the state of Wisconsin was a little bit over 9%,
2: I think 9.2%. Actually, the the, the numbers, the updated numbers from the federal government are at the beginning of 2010, it was actually 9.3%. 9.3%, okay.
1: And uh, the most recent numbers, unemployment 2.9%, which is close to structural unemployment. By that I mean... There's always going to be some people are going to be between jobs. Uh, Essentially almost anybody who really wants to get a job can get a job. How did that happen?
2: Well, a combination of things. I mean, the, the biggest uh, thanks for that are to the hardworking employers of the state, because I understand the government doesn't create jobs people do. And so there's a lot of people out there, current employers who expanded and took on more risk, others who started up new companies and did it. What we did was help create a better business climate. Uh, when I ran, only the beginning of 2010 was unemployment at 9.3%, according to Chief Executive Magazine, we ranked in the bottom 10 states for business. Uh, I'm proud to tell you that last year, for the first time in the history of that ranking, We moved up to a top ten state for business. Give me four more years. I want to compete with Texas and others for the top state in America uh, when it comes to business. But it, it really was a combination of things. And I say we, because again, you know, Robin Voss, Scott Fitzgerald, others who were involved in the past have been a great help in the legislature. we got a tremendous team in our cabinet working with the private sector all across the state. And really what we did, we, I break it down into two categories. It's it's getting out of the way, so it's lower taxes. We cut taxes on income. We cut taxes on property. We cut taxes on employers. In fact, by the end of this year, both property and income taxes will be lower than they were at the end of 2010. The cumulative impact, as I mentioned, was $8 billion. In fact, I remember once upon a time uh, years ago, 20 years ago, we were a top five state for state and local tax burden, not exactly where you want to be at. Ten years ago, we were a top uh, top ten. Last year, you may have missed it in many media outlets. I know you talked about it. We were below the national average for state and local tax burden. We want to keep chipping away at that. So we understand part of it is helping employers keep more of that money and reinvest it. Uh, Other parts in terms of cost are streamlining the process so we get rid of the bureaucratic red tape and just focus on true things that that are important, like public health and public safety, and getting rid of frivolous and out-of-control lawsuits. So those were all part of getting out of the way and, and letting employers go forward. The other part where we are an appropriate partner Uh, is in areas like education and training. I mentioned what we've done in education. We're stepping it up even more because with unemployment as low as it is right now, the only obstacle to creating even more jobs and opportunity is having the talent to fill those spots and so that's why we made those record investments in the schools that's why we made enormous investments in our technical college that's why we not only made more investments in the university of wisconsin system but we tied it to performance we said for our new money it's not about enrollment it's about graduates in high demand areas that are filling careers that we need here in the state of wisconsin we upped our wisconsin fast forward program which is customized worker training by forty percent and we're building the infrastructure to support both in terms of transportation water and infrastructure uh, that we need for our employers in the state. If we do those things and we keep bringing more talent to the state of Wisconsin, I think there's no end to how great the state of Wisconsin can be over the next few years. One other thing I might add, and this is very similar. The only other time we were close to unemployment at, at the level we are today was back in the 1990s. Tommy Thompson was governor. Unemployment at that time was the lowest at 3%. So we're, we're just below that now, which is great. But Tommy Thompson, amongst other things, pushed well for reform in the 1990s. It became a model not only for Wisconsin, but for the nation as a whole. We're we're pushing that again, and the reason is the same as back then. We can't afford to have anybody on the sidelines. We need everybody in the game. It's why, uh, with the help of the legislature, uh, we've been able to put in place plans that say, if you're a working-age, able-bodied adult, you've got to be employed at least 30 hours a week. You've got to go through a screening process to make sure you can pass a drug test. If somehow you fail the drug test, we set money aside for rehabilitation. Why? Because we know, in the business climate we live in today, there's not a single person that if they're not healthy, I can't find a job for in the state of Wisconsin. We're doing it all over the state. Every one of our 72 counties saw a reduction in the unemployment rate uh, this past month. We're going to continue to grow in every part of the state of Wisconsin. There's no excuse. Public assistance is good to do when people are down and out, but it shouldn't be a tramp, It should be a trampoline and not a hammock. And that's exactly what we're pushing going forward. Thank you.
1: We're talking about the the labor force, and of course, one of the big achievements of the last year is has been Foxconn, you know, coming into you know the Mount Pleasant and Racine County. Um, let me break it down into a couple of questions. First of all. Are you surprised that that some people have been just as opposed to Foxconn? They were interviewing the newspaper <laughs> the other day. One of the the executives was saying he doesn't understand this. They're bringing thirteen thousand jobs. He thought Republican, Democrat, bride side, groom side, everybody
2: would embrace it. Are, have you been surprised at that? No, because it's an election year. If I say that it's dark out, the liberals will say it's light out. If I say the water's blue, they say it's red. Uh, If this was next year in 2019, Democrats would be stepping over themselves to be for this because for years, Democrats have said they're for good paying, family supporting jobs. That's exactly what these 13,000, I just came from Racine County, 13,000 jobs that will pay $53,875 plus benefits on average a year, if that's not a good-paying family-supporting job, I don't know what is. Those are the kind of jobs my grandfather, who worked as a machinist for 42 years, raised my uncle, my father, and my two aunts on that, most of the time by himself. That's the kind of job that built America. That's the kind of job we need back in the state of Wisconsin again. And it's not just manufacturing. It's advanced, high-tech manufacturing that will not only create more jobs. It's 13,000 direct jobs. It's twenty. Two thousand more indirect jobs. Uh, We just saw the chamber in the Milwaukee area put out a study they did independent of us the other day that showed the economic impact beyond just the direct jobs in total is 18 to 1. Who amongst you here? Those are pretty good. Dave, those are like your odds here, right? 18 to 1, right? That's pretty good. $18 return for every dollar that the state invests in terms of incentives on this. That is a heck of a deal out there. And it's not just about the return on jobs. It's the construction work, $10 billion, almost 10,000 construction workers. It's the um, supply chain. You, know, you look at Oshkosh Corporation, great Wisconsin company, a company that's growing, a company that makes the armored vehicles for men and women in the military. They do about $300 million with a supply chain in-state a year. That equates to over 700 companies in about 140 different communities across the state of Wisconsin. That's big. Foxconn is going to be four times that big, and the best part, though, I just saw some kids. I was in Kenosha County before that at uh, uh, Shoreland um, uh, Lutheran High School, and I was in their STEM area. And what was amazing to me was to see these young people there and across the state, not just in southeastern Wisconsin, but across the state, who in our schools and in our technical colleges and in our university systems are in class today studying because they want to work for Foxconn of subsidiary or someday they want to start a company. That's going to do business with with Fox. And that's keeping our graduates here in the state of Wisconsin instead of brain drain. That's brain gain. Exactly what we need in this state.
4: Hi, Jeff. This is Joe Schalfa. Congratulations for your well-deserved retirement. Thank you for being that rational, warm and comfortable voice from Milwaukee for all these years. Not only were you a great colleague, but also one of the kindest, most generous people I've ever met. I hope there are many holes in ones for you as you enjoy this next chapter.
1: It's 1218. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, our text line. What do you say about Manafort's charge of conspiracy against the U.S.? Okay, good question. As a former federal prosecutor, whenever you have two or more people that are involved in a plan to do something illegal, you, you always throw in a conspiracy charge. Um, again, and because the conspiracy charge, the basis is you have to have overt acts, you know, underlying acts, and then you have to have an agreement between people. The conspiracy to against the United States is it's a fraud charge the allegation is they conspired together in this case it would be Paul Manafort and Richard Gates who was his partner they conspired together between themselves and with others to defraud the United States to to not pay the taxes that they were owed they conspired to uh, again um, hide to, to launder money. They conspire to hide what they allege were the illegal acts. I mean, it's not a treason charge or anything like that. It It is a conspiracy charge. They did what they did in concert with each other. So the idea that, oh, there's this conspiracy to defraud and people think it's treason, that that's not what this is. And I'm not downplaying it because, again, you know, Paul Manafort is in a ton of trouble. He's just in a ton of trouble and it appears like the FBI has been mounting a case for the last couple of years in involving his efforts to take millions of dollars in fees that he was generating from the Ukraine government at the time, the president of the Ukraine, and, and hide it. He had to pay, supposed to pay taxes on it. He was supposed to disclose what he was doing to the U.S., and he decided he didn't want to do that, and he became rich beyond the dreams of avarice, and now he has been caught. And I have, again, no sympathy for him. I'm just saying, if people are out there thinking this is the smoking gun that brings down the Trump administration, um, no, 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 it, it's it, it's not. Now, the fair question, again, would be uh, of the universe of people that President Trump during his campaign could have reached out for and tried to bring in for his, uh, again, his campaign manager, how do he end up with Paul Manafort? And that is a very, very fair question. And I guess the the, the issue becomes, does Manafort have some inside knowledge of some other illegal wrongdoing that was engaged in by now President Trump during the campaign or other campaign officials? And will he be willing to, does he have anything like that? And does he, is he in a position to try to offer that in a way to, uh, again, dig himself out of the substantial legal hole that he's in? And I guess that's where you need to wait. But the idea and all this attention that this indictment is getting, saying, oh, this is, you know, this is close to the Trump administration. No, it's it's not. It's stuff that in large cases predated his involvement with Trump. But it's a bad thing. And I'm certainly not going to defend Paul Manafort. The more interesting story to me, again, is this whole question involving Involving Papadopoulos, he's a guy who's now entered a guilty plea to lying to the FBI about his contacts with Russia. Now, so far, all the reports are um, he was trying to, again, he was trying to reach out to Russian officials to set up a meeting with the Trump campaign. It apparently went nowhere, but when he was confronted by this, he lied to the FBI. I'm not even sure if the underlying, even if they ended up having a meeting, I'm not at all convinced that that in and of itself would be a criminal act. Matter of fact, I think most Most lawyers that look at this say it probably wouldn't, although there's another school of thought on that. But I guess this is, to me, the more interesting thing. He's agreed to cooperate. Does he know something about the campaign? So far, all the reports are whenever he tried to peddle this story and set up a meeting, he got rebuffed by upper-level campaign people. But this, if you're trying to figure out where you want to go with this, this is... This is the more interesting, I think, of the two. He's a much smaller fish than Paul Manafort, not a big name guy at all. But if you want to go down the conspiracy route, if you look at go back to Watergate and you look at how Watergate unraveled, Watergate unraveled not because of the Haldeman's and the Ehrlichmans. It unraveled because of the smaller level players who got squeezed. Now, I'm not suggesting that. I think it is extremely premature, but there's going to be a lot of heavy breathing today. I'm just saying, you know, be cautious about it. I've read the indictment. I don't think this Manafort indictment in and of itself is reason again other than the optics which are admittedly once again bad i don't think the 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 manafort indictment is something that you automatically say oh this is the end of the trump administration watch the papadopoulos thing i don't know if it would ever go to trump but if he's got some dirt this might cause some other campaign dominoes to fall maybe you're
0: listening to the best of jeff wagner on wtmj
1: Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Lots of ground to cover on today's program. This is another one of those stories where everybody's wrong. Just everybody in this initial story is absolutely wrong. You have a couple Republican state legislators who have decided that they want to put a Christmas tree up in the Capitol Rotunda. This is in Madison. Typically, and they by the way, they are Christmas trees. Tony Evers, being Tony Evers, refuses to acknowledge that it is a Christmas tree. He insists on calling them a holiday tree because he doesn't want to offend anybody. Okay, fine. So this year... They, the Capitol, because the Capitol is closed to the public, and because Evers is a bit of a Grinch, the Capitol has decided that they are not going to erect that giant Christmas tree that they typically put up in the Capitol Rotunda. All right, so that's that's the rule. They've decided we're not going to do this, and it's typically decorated by kids from around the state and things like that. So they've decided we're not going to do that this year. And in order to put stuff in the Capitol Rotunda, you need to get a permit, and the Evers administration really kind of controls th- those permits. So they made a the decision we're not going to put anything up there. All right, without a permit. Two state representatives then decided, you know what, we're, we're going to reach into our own pockets and we're going to put a Christmas tree, a smaller Christmas tree, but we're going to put a Christmas tree up in the rotunda because we think there should be a Christmas tree there. Now, they didn't have a permit to do it, so they're, they're in the wrong because they didn't have a permit to do it, but at the same time... All right, when you look at all the stuff that's going on in this world, eh, okay, is this the biggest deal? Well, anyhow, Tony the Grinch Evers and his administration decide, no, we can't have the Christmas tree there. So they have it taken down because they didn't have a permit. And by the way, the Republican legislators, they're wrong to put it up because they didn't have the permit. But this is something that, given that there's not enough other stuff, I guess, going on, in the state of Wisconsin to worry about the Evers administration swoops in and they have the tree taken out okay at that point in time the Republican legislators decide well We're going to put another tree up. How dare they put that tree? They take our tree down. So yesterday, they put another tree up, and they decorate it with ornaments that they've now received from all over the the state, and I think maybe even all over the country. They put it up, and within about six hours, my understanding is, you know, last night, Governor Evers has it taken down again. So we have this, this ongoing battle between I mean, it's really like who can be more childish, right? Now the Republican legislators, and I said this when we discussed it last week. They're wrong to put up the tree. In, in they don't have the permit to do it. Now I understand the frustration because for the the last. Eight years, we've allowed the Capitol Rotunda to be occupied by the Solidarity Singers, and we, we've allowed all this stuff to go on. Um, so it is, I'm sure, frustrating to a lot of people that after allowing the Capitol to be taken over for, you know, day after day, year after year, by people trying to push a particular agenda, that now we, we, we can't have a Christmas tree that the public isn't paying for. So I understand the frustration, but there are rules, and the rules are you're not supposed to have it there. So uh, the the Republican legislators, in my opinion, are wrong to keep putting up the tree. If you want to have the trees up, put the trees in your offices that you're entitled to do that. Now, Evers, for his part, could look the other way because Lord knows they look the other way on all sorts of things. And I do think it is interesting that under the Evers administration, we have thousands, we have tens of thousands of Wisconsin residents who have been in some cases, waiting months and months and months to get unemployment compensation that they are otherwise entitled to. They're waiting months and months and months to do that. And Evers can't figure out how to get people money that they are entitled to, but but within six hours, we take down the Christmas tree. Now there is a little bit of irony to that. Maybe the Christmas tree is the low hanging fruit. Gee, I can't figure out how to get Wisconsin residents money that they are otherwise entitled to. So we'll, we'll forget about them, but we're going to take down the Christmas tree. The, the whole thing, to me, it is a classic example on all levels of the dysfunction that permeates the state of Wisconsin now and the legislature and the executive branch these two Republican legislators put the Christmas trees up in your offices alright you don't have the permit to do it you should follow the rules Governor Evers Don't you have more important things to worry about, given all the stuff that's going on, than obsessing about having these Christmas trees taken down? And yes, Governor, they are not holiday bushes. They are not holiday whatevers. They are, in fact, Christmas trees. But again, this is where we're at. Nobody's right, in my opinion, in this particular situation. And and, and again, to me, it's just an example of... Of again the dysfunction that is permeating Madison on the, these whole levels. The governor, Lord knows, he looks the way looks the other way on all sorts of other problems, whether it's rioting in Kenosha. Oh, you you just name it. Whether it's the unemployment thing, he looks the other way on that. But here, we're pulling those Christmas trees out. How dare they put them up? The Republican legislators, Lord knows there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done, like helping people get through COVID and all that type of stuff. And maybe you'd be better off spending your time trying to address that than insisting on putting these trees up. It's just, it's almost like, and I say this collectively, it's almost like you've got a bunch of Six-year-olds, four-year-olds, three-year-olds who are sitting in a sandbox just throwing stuff at each other, and the only thing you want to do is say, "Everybody to your rooms. None of you, none of you should be in this case playing in the sandbox, or none of you should be, you know, making policy decisions for the state of Wisconsin." Having said that, Merry Christmas to all. Twelve nineteen, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I, I, I don't, I don't make this up. School district in California, right outside of San Francisco, Marin County. It's called the Dixie School District. Now, it goes back to 1864. If you're just tuning in, there's a little bit of question where the name came from came from. It's 1864, so nobody knows for sure. The conventional wisdom is that it's named after an American Indian woman named Marie Dixie, who was a close friend of the guy who founded the first school that's out there. Some people say, well, no, it really wasn't that. It was a kind of a wink, wink, nod, nod tribute to the Confederacy. All right. Nobody knows for sure, but it's been The Dixie School District since 1864. Now you have some agitators, some people in the district, but a lot of people outside it who are saying, This is incredible, this is appalling, this is an insult to students of color. How dare we make them go to the Dixie School District? Carol on the west side. Carol, you're first. Good afternoon.
5: Hi there. I said, I feel like Alice going down the rabbit hole. I'm ready for the Manhattan to serve tea. But the uh, next thing, I don't remember the name of the cartoon, but there were two mice that were Pixie and Dixie. I guess we're going to have to change them.
0: Oh, well, well, I mean, right, where
1: do we start the line? How about, like, the, those little paper cups that you drink, you know, the Dixie cups? Oh, yep. You know, can, can we never, can we never have that? Right. I mean, it's, where, where do you end up drawing the line? And I guess my problem, Carol, is at some point in time, when you have these people who get worked up about this stuff, why don't, why can't we just say, you know, you desperately need to get a life? You know, concentrate on something that is of importance here, not some weird interpretation you have of a benign name. So true. Um, thanks to call. Where do we end up drawing the line? For example, If you travel in the southeast and it's one of those deals where you're staying overnight in, I don't know, Jacksonville, Florida or something like that, and you decide, hey, I want to run out to a grocery store and I want to get a six-pack of beer that I'm going to throw in the hotel refrigerator or something like that. You know, there is a very good chance that you might go to a grocery store chain that has been around – Oh, for around a hundred years, it's called the Win Dixie. Matter of fact, I think there might be plays about that as well. But it's Win Dixie, which is a a big grocery store chain. Um, it, it's the combination of the Win grocery stores and the Dixie Home chain, and they put them together. And now it's a big chain. But it's Win Dixie in that particular case. I don't think there's even any argument that the Dixie in that case refers to the South. It's, you know, it's located in the South. This is the Dixie home improvement chain. But yet nobody is offended by that because it's not like, it's not like a statement of racism. It is a statement of, of the area. Now again, here it's, it's a much more problematic thing. Nobody knows where the name exactly came from. But from a practical perspective, that is, are, should people be legitimately offended? My response would be, if you've got the time to get worked up over this particular name, that tells me you've got nothing other significant that's going on in your life. Uh, a couple texts. Mike's text. Jeff, I think it's ridiculous and a waste of time to consider changing the name of an institution that's been around for um, more than two hundred years. Well actually, eighteen sixty-four. So one hundred and fifty or so. There's a gro- to your point. There's a grocery chain called Winn Dixie. Do they need to change their name? People who have these objections have too much time on their hands. All right, another text, Jeff. I don't understand how these people get all this power. Enough already. Well, see, that's the that's part of the larger problem as well. I you know I was talking about something similar to this the other day, and somebody texted and said well you you just don 't understand if anybody's offended by whatever it was that we were talking about, they need to change it to which my response is, Why I mean at, at some point in time look there, there is somebody that is going to be offended about everything, maybe it was the story. I was talking about the Katy Perry shoes. If you weren't listening during that segment of the program, Katy Perry, who is the, the, the singer, for the last couple of years, she's had a line of shoes that, that are, are out, and they're, they're supposed to be clever. And, and what they are is the shoes are made to look like faces, and um they've got what appears to be like a little nose on them, and they've got two buttons that appear to be eyes, and then uh, at the toe of every shoe, they've got red lips. And so they come in all sorts of different colors, but, you know, somebody says, well, the black shoes, well, these are black shoes, and they've got these red lips. Oh, my goodness, this means that, oh, my goodness, this means that this is blackface, and we're going to be offended by it. Well, I mean, I understand. Again, that you've got these social justice warriors who are looking at this, and they're trying to find something that's offensive. And now we're, we're scouring American life, trying to find examples of blackface so we can get ourselves all worked up about it. But what it really is is it's, it's a pair of shoes that, again, have a face on them. There's no blackface. It's kind of like saying, well, we need to ban Mr. Potato Head because, again, you've got the bright red lips that you could put on Mrs. Potato Head. Adam in Milwaukee. Adam, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Uh, Hi, Adam. I saw telling
6: your screener that uh, if I was king, uh, I
3: would give these agitators what it is that they ask for. You want your stupid name change? You can have it. But not what it is that they truly want, and that is virtue points. Yeah. it really is about them more than anything else. You know, right. I, rather than accomplishing some good, it's me wanting to be able to pat myself on the back and say, "Look how virtuous I
1: am." I'm helping the. Well, well, well right. I mean, think of all. I mean, if you want to do something that would be constructive. Instead of spending hours and hours and hours trying to get petitions and showing up at, at the school board meetings and agitating on this, go work in a food bank. I mean, go do, something, go do something that is really going to help improve the quality of life of people in the community. But that's not what it's all about, Adam. No. You're right. It's two points.
3: If, if I could find a way to you know, say, here, you want it, but... Um, make sure that no applause is given, no recognition is given. That would just bring me delight. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right. That, that, thanks for calling. Okay, here it's the text. I'm just, Jeff, I'm disgusted by this conversation. I have to sip some water from my Dixie cup. Well, be careful. Tom and Mequon asks the point. All right. Do the Dixie Chicks have to change their name? Very, very good. I mean, what? I mean, think about how how should we be offended by the, the Dixie Chicks? Of course, you know, very, very left leaning themselves. But how could they have a name that is so incredibly and totally unwoke uh, by by having this? Bottom line is, and I and I sent out a tweet on this. If you the, the tweet I have I sent out has a link to. A story that CNN did on this, there's a, cult, a bunch of other stories, but if you watch the, the story that's contained in the link, there's people screaming and there there's folks that are going down and they're just, they are calling the school board members every name but a child of God because they want this name receded because they think it is just absolutely and totally offended. At what point in time do we say just for the love of God, get a life, concentrate on stuff that is important as opposed to trying to, uh, again, take your peculiar view, worldview of life and things that are offensive and try to inflict it on mainstream America. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Jeff Wagner's
0: 25 year career at WTMJ comes to an end for the rest of the year. Dive back in the archives with us as we bring you the best of Jeff Wagner throughout his career. You're listening to the best of Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 1208, this is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So glad to have us with you.
1: With us, with us 37 degrees. It was 80 degrees. A couple days ago, now it's 37 degrees and rainy. We are joined in the studio by the senior senator from the state of Wisconsin, Senator Ron Johnson. Senator, good afternoon. Well, Jeff, don't blame me for this weather. <laughs> no, no, we'll blame <laughs> President Trump. How about that? That's, that's sort of it. Now let's blame Tammy Baldwin. Okay, fair enough. Good. Well, we'll get around to that in a little bit. Senator, I, w- I want to talk to you about a number of things. Um, as I was telling you earlier, yesterday I spent about 35 or 40 minutes of my life watching C-SPAN, the vote to firm Mike Brennan uh, a, a guy that I've known for 25-30 years now to the United States Court of Appeals for the 7th Circuit not a single Democrat voted for Mike Brennan who I think almost everybody would argue is incredibly qualified, I mean former prosecutor former circuit court judge, private practice, I mean it, it, it's the it's the whole package and yet not a single Democrat voted for him. I read just a fraction of the outpouring of support we got
7: on a bipartisan basis. You know, just singing his praises, Democrats and Republicans alike. And you know, it was just sad that that was turned into such a partisan exercise. And let's face it, that whole Seventh Circuit seat's been a partisan exercise the entire time. But it, it has to be pointed out that that seat was open for an entire year with Senator Cole, Senator Feingold, and President Obama in office. And then when I came into office, having you know, garnered about you know, 1.1 million Republican votes, I got blue slips on, on Lewis Butler, who had been, I think, twice rejected by Wisconsin voters, and Victoria Norris, who was a staffer of uh, Vice President Biden. They gave her a little professor you know, job in you know, UW-Madison to give her some connection to the state, but really no connection to the Wisconsin legal community. And I, I said no. I, I you know, my my voters, people supported me. Deserve input into who the Seventh Circuit judge was, and the, the partisanship was off to the races, unfortunately. But I returned the blue slips on Don. Shot um, Tammy Baldwin has just refused to return blue slips now that the the tide has turned. And there's a Republican president uh, under Obama. We had. Two judges confirmed for the district court, and I returned a blue slip on the Seventh Circuit. Tammy Baldwin has literally turned this into partisan uh,
1: brawl. Now, for people who might not know, the, the blue slip is something that traditionally, if one of the senators from the state didn't want a nominee to proceed, they could refuse to return the blue slip. This this is now changed. Um, well, is, is this going to be well, changed?
7: It's been in place for about 101 years. Only two out of 18 Senate Judiciary Chairmen used the blue slip as a veto. Right. The other sixteen said, "Well, we'll consider the you know we'll consider the opinion of the state senators. Really, just sort of the, the, that state senator's opinion of that nominee. What wasn't used to hold up a hearing or hold up a confirmation. As a matter of fact, William Proxmire in 1981 right. gave a negative blue slip, returned it with a negative uh, opinion of it. On a district court judge held a hearing. That district court judge was confirmed. Next year in 1982." Same thing, negative blue slip on a circuit court judge. Hearing was held. That judge was uh, confirmed. So it's only been for about a third of the time in only two chairmen. One was a very long-serving chairman, about 22 years, that it's actually been used as a veto. Other, it's just kind of of an advisory uh, slip, and that's, that's the way it should be, particularly now that Harry Reid employ the nuclear option, change the press in the Senate, we can change the rules of the Senate, so now it only takes 51 votes, so now the minority can't even back up a blue slip by a minority senator, so
1: it's really eviscerated the blue slip, rendered it pretty much moot. Well, the bottom line, too, is is this this appointment to the U.S. Court of Appeals had been vacant since uh, Judge, January, Terry, 2010. T- Judge Terry Evans, a friend of mine, had, had passed away, and th- th- it was very clear that Tammy Baldwin, she wouldn't have signed off on anybody who would have been acceptable, I think, to the president, a, a Conservative, And so if this hadn't happened three or four years from two years from now, we'd be in the same situation, a vacancy on the Seventh Circuit that hadn't been filled. Precisely. And now she's holding up uh,
7: Gordon G. Impetro as well. For the and U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District. Her initial co- reaction was because of you know, his appearances on, on Catholic radio where he you know, talked about his faith. Uh, now she's come up with other reasons as well, but uh, I think it's kind of hard to really hide from I think mean, the real reason that she's hold- withholding the blue slip on that one as well. She gladly, you know, you know she, he's one of four... Uh, nominees that we submitted the the White House, and she signed it. She was happy right. to submit those four names, but then all of a sudden, when it when those uh, radio interviews, which by the way were never asked by our commissioners, so it wasn't like Gordon withheld that from our commissioners. But when the Judiciary Committee asked for, you know, media interviews, he gladly gave them to her sure.
1: And this is of course for the federal judgeship, uh, Judge Rudy Rudolph oh, Rando, Rando's. who passed away a couple years ago. All right, Senator. Let's talk about some of the the big stories. North Korea. President Trump secures the release of three prisoners. We now have a date for a summit. Are you optimistic? Are things better with North Korea?
7: Uh, listen, I'd like to be cautiously optimistic. I don't think there's any doubt that President Trump's maximum pressure campaign, his unpredictability, has brought Kim Jong-un to the table, hopefully uh, to actually do a deal in good faith. Uh, it's going to be crucial that China cooperates. That's why I've, I've been saying, in spite of the, the problems with trade, the number one priority of our relationship with China is to make sure they cooperate, maintain those sanctions in place to put pressure on Kim Jong-un until he gives up his nuclear program. I mean, completely, verifiably, irreversibly dismantles that nuclear program and his ballistic missile uh, technology program as well and doesn't prol- proliferate. So that, that's a tall order. Uh, good news real accomplishment getting three three
1: of the host- the three hostages back but uh, we've got a long ways to go let, let me ask you this you you used the word unpredictability do you do you believe that that unpredictability is from President Trump is is one of the things that actually has moved us potentially closer to a peace arrangement
7: yes and that comes from somebody who when uh, he was a candidate and he gave a foreign policy speech and he he complained you know America's foreign policy has been far too predictable we need to be more unpredictable in my mind I thought boy wrong answer Uh, I I do believe in general our allies the world even our enemies our adversaries need to understand what our position is and has to be pretty predictable pretty steady pretty stable but there's certainly instances where you want to be unpredictable you know one of the areas is in terms of how we deal with detainees it's it's unfortunate we give terrorists our playbook in terms of what might happen I'd rather kind of keep that somewhat secret but you know the events after Iraq and and uh, your waterboarding now we've made that very explicit there are things that we should be
1: unpredictable with And certainly President Trump uses that. We're talking to Senator Ron Johnson, the senior senator from the state of Wisconsin. Senator, let's talk about the other big foreign policy development over the course of the last week, the decision by President Trump to pull out of the Iranian nuclear pact. Good idea, bad idea. First, let me
7: say what made the world less stable and more unsafe was the agreement itself that did not limit their missile capability gave them sometime in the future the ability to develop nuclear weapons basically uh... funneled more than a hundred billion dollars into the economy and military of the world's largest state sponsor terror and so president Trump, President Obama took a risk that if he started war- working with them their behavior would change for the better. well, it changed, but for the worse, it emboldened them so they've been using those funds, their increased power to destabilize Yemen, Syria, uh, provide Hezbollah uh, more guided you know more accurately guided missiles uh, that, that can be used against israel we're starting to see a kind of a low grade conflict between Israel and Iran in Syria so I would argue it's made us less safe, so pulling out of it. I don't see how it makes us uh, any, any more or less safe. Uh, you know, I, I could take either position. You've you got an agreement. We've already, you know, the, the, the fiction of snapback sanctions was a lie. Once once they got that $100 billion plus, you're not getting it back. Once these commercial contracts have been let out, you start building these things, start strengthening the economy, that's hard to dial back. But I think probably the, the number one reason you should that I would support what President Trump is doing is if you continue down this path and more and more contracts with European partners or China and Russia, more oil is sold from Iran, it just continues to strengthen that largest state sponsor of terror. So, when all said and done, uh, I think President Trump did the right thing, particularly when you have these spontaneous protests. You know, bubbling up in, in Iran. Death to uh, America. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, Prime Minister Netanyahu who was in Washington a couple of weeks ago, spoke to the Foreign Relations Committee, made a pretty convincing case that th- this would be the time to end this so that we can increase pressure and don't let Iran get further strength based on what we've
1: already seen in terms of their behavior. How does this play out moving forward with our European allies? I mean, obviously, there, there's a number of European countries that, that do business, as you were referring to, you know, with I- Iran, um, how? Where are we? 60 or 90 or 120 days from now? If those companies continue to do business with Iran? Well, first
7: of all, I appreciate President Macron of France's uh, position of trying to really now forge a better deal. Uh, you know, the, the commercial contracts were never as robust as people thought because. Again, President Obama did this as an executive agreement. People realized it probably wasn't worth any more than the paper it was written on because it never went through the bipartisan treaty ratification vote in the Senate. And so they always suspected that uh, as unpopular as that agreement was, a future president could just do what president trump just did a couple of days ago so i don't think the commercial contracts are as bad an issue i think more more difficult is the flow of oil into places like india into china uh, that 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 might be a little bit more pro- problematic but Um, again, why should we support the largest state sponsor of terror? Hey, Jeff, it's Steve Wexler here with hearty congratulations and a couple quick thoughts on your radio career. I have always appreciated your common sense, your authentic approach. You never tried to be something you weren't, and the audience knew it. That's one of the reasons you have been such an important and successful voice in our community and on our station. It has been a real pleasure. It's been an honor being part of your talk radio journey over the years. I join all of your Good Karma Brands teammates in wishing you and Fran all the best. And may I personally just
0: say thank you for being part of WTMJ's amazing legacy.
1: 245 Jeff Becker, WTMJ pop culture corner I wish I still had the car people are texting me pictures of themselves with those cars Dana sends me one 1936 Buick special original engine transmission and interior dire financial straits made me sell it I miss it <coughs> Jim in Franklin Jim you're first hello hey
3: Jeff I wish I had my 1968 Mustang.
1: Ooh, what color was it?
3: Uh, well, I bought it. It was powder blue, but I had it repainted to uh, midnight blue. Okay. And uh, that was a sweet car that I had uh, my senior year in high school at Homestead, and <laughs> um, then I went to UWM on the east side, and I was going coming back from church at St. Peter's and Paul. Right. And um, I totaled it.
1: <laughs> you totaled it? Oh my yeah, God. It-
3: but I wasn't going fast. It was no. a fender bender, but it, it slammed the radiator into the fan, and yeah. that was all it took for the insurance company to total it. So after yeah. that, I had a, a green, a grasshopper green uh, Mustang too, which was something, yeah. Uh,
1: something else. Yeah, it, it's interesting. My, my dad, at one point in time, went through a, a car collecting mode, and he had... I I want to say it was like a '70 Mustang, and it was it was that light color blue too that you're talking about. And then then he had like a '74 Mustang convertible, and I actually like the I like the convertible. That that was kind yeah. of that I, like he was going to allow me to drive it, right? But yeah, it was right. it was it was a fun car to spin around in on occasion. I like the convertible. Thank, thanks, but yeah. I mean Mustangs. I mean, man, that's I mean back in the day, you know the Mustangs, and of course then you you had the Firebirds and Camaros before they wrecked them. Yeah, Renee and Waukesha. Renee, good afternoon.
6: I I miss my turquoise
1: blue 71 Buick Skylark. Renee, you and I didn't date in high school, did we? No. <laughs> oh, the, the reason I ask is because, I mean, my, my first girlfriend in high school, she had a 71 turquoise blue, honest to God, Skylark. And she was a year older. She got to drive. And so we started dating when I was a sophomore and she was a junior or, or ju- she was a sophomore and I was a freshman or whatever. But she had wheels. I mean, there was an appeal. And she drove that Buick Skylark, too. Yeah. I loved it.
6: It was amazing. Mine had a white vinyl top, and uh, not white. It was like a cream color, and the seats inside were cream colored also, and it was the most amazing car I've ever owned. It oh, it was so fun to drive, and it looked so cool. You know, everybody would always, wow, that's a really nice-looking car.
1: Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, I see, I, I mean— all I remember is I was dating a girl who had wheels. I mean, I was like a freshman in high school, and and, and she had a car, and her parents let her drive it, and all that. It was that was we, we we had mobility. There was that appeal. Jerry in West Bend, Jerry, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
6: Hi. Hi, Jerry. I had a '66 Volkswagen Beetle. <laughs> okay. I, I know it's not a hot rod or a fancy car, but I love that car. It was dependable. Like you, I'm not a mechanic. Yep. That thing went through anything in the winter time. Um, the simplicity of the car—I don't know if people know a lot about the older Volkswagens. Um, the the, the engine
1: was—the engine was in the—it was in the rear for those cars, right?
6: Right. Yeah. It did, ha- it did not have a heater. You—you'd <laughs> you'd have to reach behind you and underneath the back seat. There was some um, fence You'd open up. And then you'd crack the wing window, and that would create a draft coming from the engine, pulling the heat off the engine and bring it into the car. <laughs> it didn't have a windshield washer. It had a hose that plugged into the spare tire. And you push a button on the dash if you wanted windshield washer. <laughs> uh, but what that was, you had to make sure that you always kept air in your spare tire.
1: Right, or, or, or else. No, no, basically, I, I'm, look, I'm a huge fan of... Uh, I'm a huge fan of, of VW Beetles, and a matter of fact, I, I, I owned one until, until recently, but uh, it, it was different. Now the ones they make have the engines in the front and things like that, but very dependable. Mike in Bayview. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. How you doing? I'm well, thank you. The car you wish you had was?
6: A 69 Roadrunner.
1: Ooh. That was the one with the big engine, right? Yep.
6: I had a, I had a 383 inside of it, and... Uh, it was everything was stock but when I went down to when I, I went to high, I had that in high school When I would go down a block you know I just had the Purdy engine it was a dual exhaust <laughs> that car that car was just so nice it really was it was it was just just oh. fantastic I should have kept it But oh. one day I woke up and uh, parts were all stolen off of it. I couldn't <laughs> believe it
1: Well you know that's one of those cars I, I think collectors still look for those road runners just because I mean some of the original American muscle cars right there.
6: Oh, yeah. yeah I, saw, I saw those cars on, uh, on uh, you know, the car auctions you know, on TV that they show, and I, I look at those, and they going for $120,000, <laughs> dollars 140000 and I'm going, oh, God.
1: <laughs> I should I should have kept it. I should have kept it. No, thanks for the call. I get it. Let's talk to Bill in Baraboo. Bill, thanks for listening. You're in WTMJ.
4: Hi. Thanks, Hi. Jeff. I'm going to talk about my car, my first car that I ordered from the hometown dealer when I was in Vietnam, it was a 1969 Pontiac GTO, mm. the most beautiful car I've ever driven.
1: Yep, yep, yep. Oh, and was it waiting for you when you got back?
4: It was waiting for me when I got back. I, I went down and paid for it the, the day after I got home and left it at the dealership because I didn't trust myself. <laughs> went back the next day and picked it up.
1: Uh, how long did you drive it?
4: Oh, my gosh. I don't know. <laughs> uh, five or six years. and sold it to my
1: younger brother okay okay it's a, it was one of those where if you could go back and go back in time though you'd, you'd be driving one of those pontiac gts huh absolutely gto gto right it's you know i i yeah. think i owned a um gosh yeah i'm trying to think of when it would i owned a firebird right it was a green firebird for a while. my problem was the year the year i it it was a it was a mechanics, the thing was breaking down all the time, and it's just I. it was a cool-looking car, it was a fun car to drive, it was a sporty car to drive, it was just always, always, always in the shop, and finally it kind of wore me down. Let's see, let's talk to uh, John in New Berlin. John, you're on WTMJ, hello.
3: Hey, hello, Jeff.
1: You're, uh, and the car you wish you still had? Uh,
3: my 1958 Chevrolet Impala. You had a
1: 58 Chevy?
3: I did. Wow. I bought it in 1967 from uh, a friend of mine who got it from a school teacher that was trying to repair it and couldn't get it fixed. He had some problems with the lifters. However, I got it fixed. I paid $75 for it. <laughs> now, what's unique about this car is the memory of Pala was the first year they came out in 1958. It was kind of their Starship car. Okay. You know, Full power, power brakes, power steering, power windows, a big V8 engine, automatic transmission. That was kind of the norm for that car. Mm -hmm. This car had no power steering, no power brakes, no power windows, a straight six-cylinder, three-on-a-tree overdrive. Okay. So it was very rare.
1: Yeah. Huh.
3: But it was, I drove it for about a year and a half, and I didn't have to put a lot of money into it at all. So I think I maybe had 150 bucks invested in it with the purchase of the car.
1: Oh, oh, and you had a lot of fun. Now, they, I mean, they, they're, they're like, the okay, you're 58 Chevys, very, very cool. And see, you, when you say things like you're talking about now with, with that, with like no power steering and no power brakes and no power windows, people nowadays look and say, what do you mean? They really sold cars like that? Yeah. And it's, this is the time way before Al Gore invented the Internet, where they actually they had televisions that were still black and white let's talk to tony in sussex tony you're in wtmj hello hi okay the car you wish you still had was
8: my 1972 lincoln continental mark four
1: okay a big one a big cruising car
8: yes sir i bought it in 1989 me and my uh my friend we took a trip up to Flatville because i was seeing if i was going to go up there and play football on the way back, we saw the car. It was in a lot being sold for like $1,500. <laughs> I talked her down to like 500 and drove it home that day.
1: <laughs> oh, and you must have been styling in that car, I can imagine.
8: You have no idea. <laughs> i like, I love that car, but I only had it for like two and a half months because I allowed my brother to drive it for less than one day. And he managed to take it out one day and wreck the entire <laughs> front
1: end. <laughs> See that? You, you, you trusted your brother. Thanks for that. You screwed up. You trusted your brother. A uh, car I wish I still had, um, I had a Honda Prelude. It was like a 1984, maybe, it was like a 1984 Honda Prelude. A little car, but it was stylish. It was fun. I liked it. Honda changed the Prelude, ended up, you know, killing the model and stuff. But I love that Honda Prelude. Um, I kind of like the car I've got right now, too. Music mogul Kanye West gets on the Wisconsin ballot. Now, Eric Billstead, what would you say Kanye West is most famous for?
7: Well, he, he does have some good records, but a lot of people now know him as a... A rapper who's married to, uh, Mrs. Kardashian. Kim
1: Kardashian, right. He is Mr. Kim Kardashian. A- absolutely. That, that I think is, right. He, he's very successful, very, very wealthy. But I, I think when you say Kanye West to most people, it's that you think, Oh, he's, he's the guy that's married to Kim Kardashian mm-hmm. and part of that just whole reality show world that's, that, that's out there. Yep. Well, Kanye West. Wants to be the president. Well, I I don't know if he really wants to be the president. Maybe it's just, again, this great publicity stunt. But Kanye West is trying to get on the ballot. And if you haven't been following the story, it's kind of interesting here. Now, keep in mind, Donald Trump won Wisconsin last time around by like 22,000 votes. So that in in a state where... You know, you're, you're going to have well over a million votes cast. That, that's a very, very small margin. So if we were to assume, and I'm not saying I necessarily buy this, but if we we're to assume that Wisconsin is going to be as close in 2020 as it was in 2016, any, anything can really have an impact on, on the ballot. So Kanye West, for reasons that are still a little bit unclear, he's, he's running for president. To get on the ballot in Wisconsin, To be president, you need 2,000 signatures. So you have to have 2,000 people that say, I I support this. All right. So that's the background. Um, As it turns out, you had Republican operatives who were helping get signatures to get Kanye West on the Wisconsin ballot. Now, why? Well, Well, the answer is obvious because... I don't know if it's correct thinking, but the thinking is, gee, Kanye West, if he's on the ballot, there might be some people who would otherwise vote for Joe Biden who will vote for Kanye West. Now, I, I don't, I don't know. Again, yeah, that might be overthinking this, but and that might be like too clever by half. But all right, that's kind of what the thinking is going on. But again, keep in mind, in an election where President Trump won last time by twenty-two thousand votes, if you. I don't know, get 20,000 people or more who vote for Kanye West instead of Joe Biden. Theoretically, that that could have an impact. Again, I'm not saying I buy into this, but this is the thinking. So you have Republican operatives who were helping get Kanye West on the ballot. The Democratic Party of Wisconsin does not want Kanye West on the ballot because they're worried that he's going to siphon some votes away from Joe Biden. So Republicans want him on the ballot. Democrats don't want him on the ballot. Which brings us to the state elections commission. Now, the laws in Wisconsin are are extremely clear. Like I say, you need two thousand valid signatures to get yourself on the ballot. In addition, those signatures, under the law, need to be turned in by five o'clock p.m. on in what would have been last Tuesday. Okay, so or the, the previous Tuesday. So that's it. They have to be in by. Tuesday, at, by Tuesday a week ago, and they have to have 2,000 signatures. So that's kind of the, the story behind it. And there's been some. There's been some thing, if they look through the ballot signatures, and this almost always happens, they find some signatures of Mickey Mouse and things like like that. But what happens is, so the elections board, they review the signatures, and they turned in like 2,400 and some signatures, and even after striking the questionable ones, there's still more than 2,000 signatures valid that are there to get him on the ballot. Well, here's the problem. Like I say, the law says that... The signatures need to be turned in by 5 o'clock p.m. We could go Tuesday. Well, in order to be, in order to be counted. For reasons that still escape me, the people showed up at the courthouse to turn in the signatures, and they didn't get there until like a minute or two after (laughs) 5. Now, I, it, it's there, there's a little bit of an argument whether they got there at 5 o'clock and 30 seconds or 5.01 or 5.08 or whatever, but they, they didn't get there by 5 o'clock, and the law does say pretty clearly it has to be in by 5 o'clock. So now they have enough valid signatures to be on the ballot but they have failed to get there in a timely fashion based on on this technicality. So what happened yesterday is the State Elections Commission staff, these are are the bureaucrats, they issued a paper saying, we believe Kanye West should not be put on the ballot because of the failure to turn the signatures in by five o'clock, all right? And that's now what the Elections Commission is going to be deciding do you deny him access to the ballot based on what I think you could argue is a, is a very, very hyper-technical failure? I mean, there was somebody in the clerk's office. They, they turned him in, but they were a minute or two late. So the question is, all right, what, what do we accomplish? If in Wisconsin our, our history has been that we try to bend over backwards to allow people ballot access, to to get them on the ballot, even though Kanye West isn't gonna win the Wisconsin election, he's not gonna get any electoral votes. But historically in this state, we have bent over backwards to try to find ways to put people on on the ballot if they have enough ballot signatures. Now you might remember earlier this year, two people running to be the uh, Milwaukee County Executive got tossed off the ballot because they they failed to turn in enough valid signatures. If you remember there, there's a rule that says that you can only circulate petition, you can only circulate signatures for one candidate and these various candidates went out they hired this outfit to go get signatures for them and then the outfit went out and they, they used the same person to go get signatures for multiple candidates. So in that case the, the law was that the, these signatures were not valid because the law says guys circulating can only circulate petitions for one candidate, and all the other ones that get turned in are, are struck down. So even though the candidates did not know that the person they hired had gone out and had solicited signatures for other campaigns, the elections board said, okay, we can't let you on the ballot because this is a violation, and those signatures are not, we, we can't accept them. This, I think, is a closer call, and, and by the way, I don't have any problem with, with the law, I think it will be interesting to see what happens. And my comment on this is, first of all, again, the Democrats, like I say, they're the ones that filed the complaint saying it was a couple minutes late, so you shouldn't let him on the ballot. This, again, it is a technicality. And I guess the question to me becomes, how significant is this technicality? But here's the thing, and this is where the precedent is. Like I say, the, the tradition in Wisconsin has been that we bend over backwards to try to not use technicalities to keep people off, off the ballot. And I do think whatever the State Elections Commission does today sets a precedent because, yes, the law says it has to be turned in by 5 o'clock, and I have no problem if the Elections Commission says, all right, we're going to enforce this. It was They they came a minute late or two minutes late or or whatever, but they have enough ballot signatures, but because you missed the deadline by a minute or two or three, we're not going to let you on the ballot. That's fine if they take that position, but I think people need to know, at least in my opinion, you're setting a precedent here, because if we are now going to stop we're going to say we're not going to allow people on the ballot because of what, again, I, I think it is a technicality. You know, you're a minute or two late. And you're late, and the law says you've got to be there by 5 o'clock. And for the life of me, I do not understand how you can be a couple minutes late in something like this. I mean, you know what the deadline is. It's like I don't understand how people running for office only turn in like two thousand if if, if it 's two thousand signatures to get you on the ballot you 're allowed to turn in four thousand. Why you wouldn't turn in three or four thousand is absolutely beyond me because what happens is inevitably some of these signatures are going to get struck down. We may very well have had a new county executive or at least a different county executive if the people that were running for office. I don't know, in my opinion, tended to their business and turned in way, way, way more signatures than they needed, which is what I think responsible candidates do. So I, I, I lay some of this on the candidates. If Kanye West gets struck from the Wisconsin ballot, uh, you know, there, there's no excuses for showing up late. I mean, you know the signatures have to be in at 5 o'clock on August 4th. So what the heck are you doing walking into the courthouse at five o'clock on August 4th? I mean, you got the signatures, you get them together, get your act together. And if not turning them in, I don't know, the Friday or the Thursday before, so you have a chance to correct things if there's a problem, well, at least you, you show up at the courthouse at noon to avoid this whole issue. They didn't. Now there is this issue. My point is, if the Elections Commission decides to not allow him on the ballot, again, I really don't think it's, it's going to make much difference one way or the other. But if they do decide to not allow him on the ballot, they are setting a precedent. And from here on in, I think the rule they are saying is if candidates have technical failures – and that, in this case, again, I think showing up thirty seconds or a minute late is is a technical failure, but it is in the, literally it is a failure if they showed up after five o'clock. If that's now how we're going to start interpreting things and striking people off the ballot, fine, that, that's okay. I'm cool with that. But we now have to apply it to all races moving forward, not in this case just a presidential race where you clearly have both political parties that are trying to sort of game the system for what is obviously a fringe candidate. I don't know what the Elections Commission is going to do. I I don't necessarily think they'd be wrong if they go in either direction, but they do set a precedent. We'll probably know later today.
0: Hey, Jeff, Charlie Sykes here. Congratulations on 20 gazillion years on the radio. You and I both know this sort of thing's a lot harder than it looks, but you've been a consummate pro all these years, and I can't wait to hear what you're going to do next, because even though we're old guys now, we're still too young to retire, right? But seriously, Jeff, best wishes for whatever you've got planned. Just don't make it a daily radio show.
1: So, I mean, I'm talking to the the car salesman yesterday, and and I I was just looking at the the midsize and the the full-size versions of of the SUVs that I was looking at. Now, I I didn't want that, but I kept saying, my gosh, this is just a huge boat. And he was saying, yeah, you, you understand, this is the problem nowadays. You buy this, and you're you're going you have to realize that for a lot of the angle parking spaces spaces and parking lots it's not going to fit or it's only going to barely fit you know so you're going to be taking up that whole space but what that means is you're going to have trouble finding parking places because if if there's somebody on either side of you you're going to have trouble opening the doors to get out jeff i think it's time to make parking spots bigger and also have um fewer of those Jeff, I drive a big Ram Four, and I love it. But I' avoiding it to driving it to Milwaukee because parking it is often difficult. Um, I sometimes park drive in a parking lot, ride lot, and then take you know an Uber into the city. You know, one of our texters says, "Oh, Jeff, most condo garages are too small for these big vehicles, so parking outside is necessary. Jeff, I'm a nurse who parks in hospital structures. Believe me, I feel your pain. Same with the seats on airplanes. They're just not made for real people, maybe kids. Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
9: Hey Jeff, this call is probably gonna upset people, but I think those oversized pickup trucks are really annoying. We have two two of them in our underground parking garage at um at the apartment place where I live, and the trucks frequently like stick out in the aisle can and can easily get like get banged or cause mm-hmm. an accident. Yeah, and I do feel really sorry for the people who have to park next to them every day because they do have very little space and they can easily get door dings. And then the other thing that ticks me off is that when these big pickup trucks are out on the road, it seems like a lot of people don't know how to drive them because they're, they're often veering into the next, in the next lane when they shouldn't be. And then if they're stopped at like the median is the median, like people sometimes do, they often stick out in the lanes and obstruct traffic. And the other thing is that, how many of these people actually have to carry big loads of hay around <laughs> and really need need them? I, I suspect that it's really just a trendy thing. Jeff, don't and, be a hater. almost <laughs> sort of like a country and western thing. Jeff, don't, thanks. No, 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 no thank so. you. Don't be
1: a hater, man. That, don't be a hater. If you want to buy a pickup truck, I get it. But I, I also understand here, here. One of our texters makes the point, Jeff, most people don't have the skills to park in these undersized spots. Well, that's true, too, because, I mean, I, I see that there there a lot of times they're just flat out over the line. But even if they're within the lines, you got a problem. Jeff, I'm happy to hear that someone else has the same issue that bugs him as I do. I can never turn right at a light because there's usually a giant vehicle next to me and I can't see if cars are coming around from the other side and also backing up in the parking lot. It's scary to me. I have a small compact car, so it's a miracle I've never been hit. Yeah, I mean, I have small SUVs, so it's a little bit bigger um jeff these big vehicles should not plan to come to heartland they repainted the street lines and now you can only fit a small suv in them um yeah, I think there's, there's an element, um, to that. Jeff, when I park in the lot at the VA, there are big trucks parked in spots that say compact cars only. You're right about these various spots that are there. Jeff, maybe designate a section for bigger cars, repaint the lines. Jeff, my first car was a 1970 Chrysler, 67 Chrysler Newport. It was 17 feet long, and I could fit nine other friends in it. Mind you, there were no laws about seatbelts or years ago. I cannot believe now how vehicles seem to have been larger than that. Mine was a tank. Okay, I can relate to that because it wasn't my first car. But somehow, this was when I was in college. I'm not complaining because my parents gave me the car to use. Somehow, my father purchased a 1970 Chrysler Newport, which was... I know exactly what this guy's talking about. It was the land yacht. I mean, you could you could put an enormous amount of people in it. We would routinely, you know, you had bench seats in the front. You could routinely, you could easily get eight people in, in that car. I mean, it, it was just, like I say, we would call it the land yacht. So I, I understand it's kind of gone full circle, but, you know, this is, this is just kind of how this whole thing works. Jeff, I see a similar thing in outdoor parking. Narrow, shallow, and not much space between the rows, making backing up a little scary. Um, yeah, that's that's it. One of our other textures makes the point of the worst thing is that he, he parks in a space. The space next to him is open, but then he comes out, and you've got one of those big, giant cars that's now parked in the space to the left, so he can't squeeze in to get into the door. I don't know what the answer is. I just, it's getting worse, not better. There's no question
0: about it. Jeff Wagner's 25-year career at WTMJ comes to an end. For the rest of the year, dive back in the archives with us as we bring you the best of Jeff Wagner throughout his career. You're listening to the best of Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
1: Panhandle. If you are a regular listener of the program, you, you know that this is, this is kind of one of my pet peeves when it comes to quality of life issues. As a matter of fact, we're going to be talking about a couple of quality of life related issues in this, this hour of the show. But I there is nothing in my mind that can turn in my opinion, turns people off to a particular area more than having bums. And ever I say bums, there's a guy that calls up. Don't call them bums panhandlers, bums, whatever, people who come up and beg money from you. I've said this before. I mean, I think San Francisco is one of the greatest towns, greatest cities in North America. Last two times we've been in San Francisco, it made me never want to go back again because we stayed in the financial district and there there are so many... Panhandlers, whatever that you can't walk a block through the financial district without having four or five or six people aggressively panhandle you. If you want to go into a store, you've got to climb over two or three people with their shopping carts and their bed rolls and things like that to get into the stores. And after a while, it just it just wears you down. I know we were there once, and my wife wanted to give some guy money, and I'm I'm yelling at her. I'm say, look, you know, if we want to give money to a soup kitchen or something like that, I'm all in favor of it. But just giving money to some guy off the street who you do not not know what he's going to do with it, and chances are better than even, at least in my opinion, maybe I'm being a cynic, that he's not going to buy food or anything with it. What he's going to do is he's going to buy dope or something like that. We're not helping the, the situation. But panhandling can be an issue. In the city of Milwaukee, you had the Common Council, which decided not to renew, not to allow a business, this donut store at Dunkin' Donuts on Wisconsin Avenue, not to allow them to operate 24-7 because... When they were open late at night, they were attracting too many panhandlers outside the business. So what do we do is we say, okay, instead of dealing with the panhandlers, the bums, what we're going to do is we're going to say the business can't stay open. (laughs) I mean, it just, which is to me a completely butt backwards way to deal with this. Well, in any event... Um, at least some people in the city are are concerned about this, uh, Terry Witkowski, who is the chairman of the public safety commission he 's one of the aldermen you know he said look we're we 're having a problem i 'm paraphrasing a little bit, but in Milwaukee he says they 're seeing a growing number of panhandlers, including people standing at intersections near off ramps on medians asking for money. I watched one of these guys the other day walking walking essentially. Up the off-ramp for one of the freeway things, going, you know, there's a red light, there's a stoplight at the base of the ramp. This guy was just in the street, walking, going car to car to car, trying to beg money. And, you know, what says, the problem is multidimensional, but it's definitely get this. this, is the alderman, made worse by people giving the panhandlers easy money. He says, money that most likely will be used for items that feed addiction. If we offer sensible alternative options and information about resources, we believe we can reduce the panhandling problem. And that is what this initiative that he wanted to start called Keep the Change is all about. This, this initiative, Keep the Change, is designed to encourage people not to give the bums money. It it's doesn't, it's not intended to encourage people not to make charitable donations or not to give money to the soup kitchens or the homeless shelters or whatever, but it's designed to encourage people, don't give the homeless money. You are not helping them and you are you know, maybe making the situation worse because if you've got somebody that's panhandling, you don't know what their real situation is and you don't know that that money's gonna be used for food or shelter. What you could be doing is simply, it could be somebody who's just decided that this is their, their industry, this is how they make money. I think there's some people like that that they don't pay taxes on. Or you can have other people that you're giving them the money and all they're gonna do is turn around and buy heroin with it or buy methamphetamine or whatever and you're just making the matter worse. So what what he wants to do is start this proposal, it's an informational campaign. Keep the change. Well, this morning it went before the public safety committee. Uh, And again, the purpose is to try to discourage people from giving money. And so far, the proposal is going nowhere, nowhere. Alderman Malaley Coggs questioned Witkowski about the cost of the city. Alderman Joe Davis said he couldn't support the proposal, adding that many panhandlers could be homeless people in crisis. And so his idea is let's, let's just essentially, you know, do do nothing about this. Witkowski says panhandlers hurt business and that not everyone who panhandlers is panhandles is homeless. But you've got... Alderman and Milwaukee Common Council who apparently don't see this as a problem and don't support an initiative like this. You might consider me to be some like hard hearted, you know, conservative here, but the truth is I do not think giving panhandlers money helps. I think, in general, it makes the situation worse. And I think anything the city could do to discourage this practice, whether it is arresting people who are walking in the street trying to beg money or trying to educate people that if you want to give money, there's all sorts of great places you can give money that will make sure that your money is used properly. But I think it is appropriate For the city to be discouraging people from giving money, and this keep the change initiative is something I think the entire city, uh, the Common Council, should get behind. Should we be discouraging people from giving money to the panhandlers, recognizing that... Maybe it's just going to lead to more and more panhandlers. I got to tell you, I think Witkowski is onto something with this Keep the Change initiative. And I think the fact that you don't have more members of the Common Council willing to get behind it says much more about them than it does to, you know, this program. And if people wouldn't give these folks money, they wouldn't be out there begging. Dan, downtown. Dan, you're first at 620 WTMJ. Good afternoon.
8: I have a condo downtown I'm not far from Wisconsin Plankington the center of downtown. Sure. Uh, we've had people who actually almost accost uh, people uh, and it's not aggressive panhandling it's almost assault <laughs> And uh, we've called police many times and I think the problem is is yeah I keep the change one thing but I think it's having a better police presence mm-hmm. having deep cops who know who these certain per- people are because we seem to have the same people showing up and the same problems so if you get to know who they are then you can do some community policing some intervention get some other uh, other agencies involved with some of these people so that Otherwise, just scaring the people staying at the hotels and mm-hmm. people are going to Riverside. It, it's not a good
1: situation. Well, no, it's not. And, and I mean, I understand some people might say, well, well Dan, you know, what, what's the big deal? These people are down on their luck. Well, maybe, maybe not. You don't know that. But the truth is, I mean, I don't think there's anything that, that kills an area faster. A Crime, number one. But number two is of the aggressive type of, of begging that you're talking about, because people just say, I, you, you, you just say, I, I, I don't want to be in that particular area. I'm not going to walk. Around the streets, if I if I have to go through five or six bums every block, people aren't going to do that. Yeah,
8: and we have people that actually will cross the street. I've seen young ladies leaving Riverside Theater, and instead of walking and laughing, they're actually walking very fast in order to get away from a situation they don't know what they're going to get into. Right, that's the thing. It's not that these people are dangerous; people don't know, and it makes them very very uncomfortable.
1: Um, thanks to call again, my my concern is you you never know that you know yes there, there might be somebody who's legitimately down on their luck um and is is really going to use that money to go buy food okay that that's one I think the majority, in my opinion, the majority of people, especially the folks that you see hanging out outside the overpasses, off the overpass and things like that. I, I think for some for some of these people, it's, it's a business, it's the job and it's easier to stand there and look like you're uh, forlorn and collect money than it is to actually go work and pay taxes on these type of things. And again, I'm not against making donations to charity. I'm just saying that I don't think giving people money on the streets solves a problem and at least with Kowski's point is when this happens you have just made it worse because by giving people money that just encourages those people to continue begging and more people to come and beg as well Betty in Milwaukee Betty you're on 620 WTMJ good afternoon
5: thanks for taking my call this is something uh, this is a uh, discussion that's near and dear to my heart we have a business on National Avenue and uh, I continuously call panhandlers in they stand in the medium. They go out into the traffic. They impede traffic. Mm-hmm. The one thing with, with what I'm Kowski, sorry.
1: Where, where did you say your uh, Where did you say your business is?
5: Thirty-sixth and National. Thirty-sixth
1: and National. Okay, mm-hmm. got it. Okay. Uh,
5: Silver City area. Got it. Okay. Uh, it makes the area trashy. Yeah. But the one thing that Witkowski, from what I understand, because I talked to my alderman today and asked about about it uh, or what happened at the committee, he wants the uh, the, the big thing was putting signs up. Mm-hmm. Now. That's fine uh, for the bid areas for money to come out of the bid. But what about what is it going to do? It's going to chase them. The the panhandlers into the areas that don't have a bid. We don't have a bid over
1: here. Right. So what you're you're saying is don't don't move the problem. If the problem is, uh, if you've got a lot of panhandlers on Ninth in Wisconsin outside the Dunkin' Donuts, the last thing you want them to do is be chased over to 36th and National.
5: We have enough. We have enough trouble over here. But with, without ha- having another area push them out of their area, and they're just going to go someplace that they can do it.
1: Now, Betty, uh, some people might be listening to us saying Wagner. Betty, you guys are overreacting to this. No, nobody, nobody's going to not shop at a particular store or not come into an area just because there's you know, a handful of people begging money on the streets in front of the businesses.
5: Well, you know what? Then they should come. I'd be more than welcome. They would be more than welcome to come and stand and watch. Yeah. These people collect enough money They go over to the payphone, and make their little call. I've seen them go around meet on the corner, buy their drugs. Uh, It makes the area look trashy. We want to. We're trying to build our area up, not knock it down. And this is just one thing they have got to. Then make the ordinance. There is no panhandling. We have enough programs. There's enough programs. There's enough giveaways of food. The churches. Many of the churches in the area give food. Get these people off the streets. somebody's going to get killed then what
1: Well that you, you Betty, you're you're preaching thanks to call you're preaching to the choir because I mean I see again wandering around the freeway off ramps okay right I work on Capitol Drive it's Capital and Humboldt so the you got the freeway off ramp it's about 2 miles down the road from us um, on Green Bay and Capitol. and th- this is this is a very very busy intersection you've got a ton of cars and there are routinely you know, one or two, when I go that route, I, I see one or two, sometimes it's the same people, sometimes it's different people, that are, are literally, when cars are stopped, they're wandering through the roads, they're going up to windows, they're begging money from people, and, you know, somebody, you're right, Betty, somebody's going to get hit, and somebody's going to get killed, and then we're going to have this conversation, well, why did this happen, or, okay, the... The other day, I'm I'm stopped getting off the freeway. There's a red light. The car in front of me stops at a green light because some bum has come out and is trying to solicit them. The car behind me almost slams into me because I've slammed on my brakes. I slam on my brakes so I don't hit the car. It's like, okay, it's a green light. You know, it was a lady. Just go through the light. Okay, I'm sorry. You're not going to I understand you want to give the person money, but for goodness sakes, you've almost caused a three-car accident. So very glad to have you with us. All right. The final Jeopardy answer is, what is pickleball? The question, the question is, what is the fastest growing sport in the United States currently? And the answer is, what is pickleball? Um, If you if you haven't Played, well, let me just back up. Pickleball actually dates back to the 1960s, but what happened is its popularity just went through the roof during COVID as more people discovered the sport, which is often um, played outdoors. In 2021, they estimate that there were 4.8 million people who played pickleball. That's up 39% from 2019. And one of the things that's been going on is that it, to, to answer the demand for pickleball, what you have is that more residential communities are rushing to either build pickleball courts or to retrofit tennis courts to accommodate the influx of players. And the way it works is you could take a single tennis court and you can, by, by adding lines and nets, you, you can turn a single tennis court into four pickleball courts. That, that's kind of how it works. And, and, you know, at one point in time, tennis was the rage, not so much anymore. Now it it's, it's pickleball. Now, if you haven't ever played pickleball and I, I okay, I've got a, I've got a pickleball racket and I've got a paddle, I guess. And a pickleball itself is, is sort of like a wiffle ball is how I would describe it. And pickleball is a combination of, I don't know, tennis and ping pong and, and I don't know, maybe maybe, maybe racquetball or so, but it's played again on on a court that's a quarter the size of a regular tennis court. You can play it one person versus one person, or you can play it in, in teams. And you, you you bounce the like the wiffle ball, and you hit it over the net, and you both kind of run up to the net, and you kind of volley it back and forth. That's that, that's that's sort of how you you do it. My wife and I took. We we actually took a couple pickleball lessons last summer and she she actually kinda liked it more more than I did. But part of the appeal is, again, you're you're not running like you are in tennis. So as you get older and you you've got, you know, your knees are starting to give out and your ankles are starting to give out and stuff. It's just it's it's a lot easier to play. <clears throat> and it's kind of a just like sort of ping pong, but you're outside. It's it, it's kind of fun. Any, anybody can play it. There, you don't have to cover a lot of ground. You just have to have the reflexes enough to kind of bang this thing, you know, back and forth. You don't spend a lot of time, you know, like tennis sometimes, you know, chasing courts. Hey, go throw me the ball from two courts over. And it has become incredibly, incredibly popular. Now, the problem to the extent there's a problem with pickleball it is twofold. First of all, you got people that love tennis who hate the fact that that their courts, especially like a lot of these public courts, are are being taken over and converted from tennis courts to pickleball courts because there's a lot more demand for people to play pickleball than there is to play tennis. The second thing that causes people to complain is that people say pickleball is a lot louder than than tennis is because there's a lot more contact. You know, you've got, okay, first of all, you've got four four pickleball courts for every tennis court. And you've got, in many cases, you've got four players that are playing. So instead of two or four players on one tennis court, you've got sixteen people. It could be that are, that are playing pickleball, and so they're they're banging the ball back and forth. So you get a lot more of the thunk 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 that, that's going back. And a lot of neighbors complain that my God, you know, pay, people play pickleball from you know seven o'clock in the morning, and they play, you know, if, if there's lights on, they they play till nine or ten o'clock at night, and this is huge annoyance. And so you have the, this huge war that's going on huge story in the wall street journal today and the new york times last week pickleball is expanding tennis and neighbors are mad now like i say i stopped playing tennis a long time ago um i did when i was a kid but i stopped playing tennis a long time ago but when it comes to you know pickleball we, we've started to play it my wife like i say likes it a little more than me but there's no question that um we're, we, we, we. I, I mean, I get it. I, I, like it. I mean, I understand why people would could play. Um, my reflexes are still okay, so I was actually pretty good at it. The couple times that we've done it, and I can certainly see myself playing this more. My question is: Is this a fad, or is this going to be a sport that continues to grow in popularity? And it's growing in the face of, again, tennis players who don't like the fact that their courts are being taken over, and it's growing in the face of lots of, like, neighbors in some of these communities that object to the fact that you're getting the noise all in all. Is pickleball pickleball a fad, or is this here to stay? For a variety of reasons that we're going to get into, I don't think this is a fad. I I think, and I have seen fads, but I think this is something that, while, while people still get injured playing pickleball, there's no question, a lot of people, like, try to back up and they fall, but... I think this is I think this is kind of the way of the future, because as people age, this is a way that you can continue to engage in an outdoor, quote unquote, sport. Um, but it, it's a lot easier on the body in most cases than tennis is. So pickle pickleball players. Is this is this for real or are we looking at a fad?
0: This is the best of Jeff Wagner highlighting the best moments of a 25 year career on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff, former producer Sam here. I just wanted to congratulate you on 25 years here at WTMJ. And thank you for being so open and kind and showing me the ropes around here for about four months. Uh, Short but sweet. So, yeah, go live it up in Florida with Fran and you will be missed. Thanks so much.
1: Three people are asking me, where does the name Pickleball come from? Okay, well, there is a controversy in this. Here's here's as near, near as I can figure out. In the summer of 1965, Pickleball was founded by Joel Pritchard, Bill Bell, and Barney McCallum on Bainbridge Island, Washington. Within days, uh, the wife of Joel, Joan Pritchard, had come up with the name Pickleball, a reference to the thrown-together, leftover non-starters in the pickleboat of crew races. Many years later, as the sport grew, a controversy ensued when a few neighbors said that the, they were there when Joan named the game after the family dog, Pickles. Although there is a controversy because some people say, no, Pickles didn't come till afterwards, and Pickles was named after the game Pickleball. So choose it. In any event, it's, it I mean you think about, like, badminton and ping pong and tennis all kind of thrown together, and and that's it. Let's talk to Ken. Uh, Ken, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi there. How are you? Good. Is this a fad?
4: Uh-huh. I, no, it's not a fad. Um, I come from a racquetball background, a highly competitive 35 years of playing racquetball, and I can't do that anymore. I can't play at that level. My body just won't allow it. But pickleball allows you to play, be competitive. You can play till you're much older. Um, mm-hmm. Your body doesn't ache as bad. Uh, arthritis, you know, whatever. Um, No, it's not a fad. It's going to be here for quite a while.
1: You know, the other thing I think about pickleball, and obviously with your background, you're probably quite good at it, but it's, it's not that hard a game to learn. And what I found is that, you know, pretty much anybody can play it. I mean, it's, you know, tennis, you need a certain degree of speed and power and things like that. Same thing true with racquetball. Uh, Pickleball, you know, you've got the paddle and, you know, you just move the paddle back and forth. And as long as your reflexes are okay, almost anybody can play the game and have fun.
4: Oh, I agree. I agree. I I do teach it uh, from time to time. And some of the people that... Come to the club for lessons. There, uh, it, it's tough for them to pick up, but they eventually do. So yeah. I agree that it is an easier game to learn.
1: Yeah. No. Thanks for the call. And one of our texts was saying, <clears throat> "Well, here pickleball takes less athleticism and endurance, and it can be played by people who are well into their senior years. It also takes up far less space. It can also be played indoor. I think it's it's here to stay. And I I I actually." I, I mean, I agree. I mean, Ken's a perfect example of that. You know, if you grow up playing racket sports and stuff like that, but you get to the point where, okay, I can't do racquetball anymore, or I, I can't really do tennis, but I, I can go do pickleball, and I can end up having fun. Let's talk to, um, let's see, Don in da- da- downtown. Don, you're on WTMJ.
9: Hey, good afternoon. Um, it's really not a fad. I think it's, it's – there's a wonderful community um, of players, and depending on their attitude, it can be a lot of fun if it gets – some people, especially in, if you travel to warm weather states, can be pretty competitive. Mm-hmm. It depends what you want. But as a as a marathon runner, this is a great segue into something else. Um, however, it's not the yeah. best exercise if there's a lot of people waiting.
1: Yeah, but it, but again, I think, I, I guess my response to Pickleball was, I, I'm not sure I necessarily went into it doing exercise. It was more like, oh, this seems like something fun to do, and we were playing it with a couple other couples and things like that, and it's it, it's – you, you can play the games relatively quickly, so it's not like you're having to commit a couple hours. It's not like you're committing four hours for a round of golf or something. It's like, oh, let's let's play pickleball a little bit, and then let's sit and have a drink or something. I thought it was a great social activity okay. as well.
9: There's no question about it. Yeah, that, 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 you, you nailed it.
1: <laughs> yeah, so. right. No, thank. No, I, I think, and that's and, and that's the case. Plus, again, it, it takes up less space, and I I think for these tennis players who are. Opposing this, it's kind of like, man, you just need to start embracing this. Pam and Appleton. Pam, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
3: Good afternoon. How are you?
1: I am well, thank you. You a pickleball fan?
5: I am. Um, I just got in the car and heard you talking about the reason I love it is we play up north when we go up with our family and my. We usually have like a dozen people playing and we just kind of round robin people in and out. But my 20, real, 20 year old nephew will play and my 82 year old dad will play. Yeah. So I think it covers all ages and it's very social and it's quick. And yeah. we it, actually traveled to Florida and you could bring your pickleball racks in our suitcase. So we did met some people on the courts down there and played. And
4: yeah, it, and,
1: yeah
5: it, I think it's around.
1: Yeah. And it's not you I mean, it's not like golf for example again and i'm a a golfer i love it but you know golf you you can drop thousands of dollars on clubs and balls and things like that you know pickleball rackets i i I, you know i I, we probably don't have the highest end ones but i I think for the balls and for all the stuff you know was like 30 or 40 bucks you know something like that and 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 i think i could have gotten cheaper ones so it's it's cheap it's easy to get into and again it's pretty much anybody can play it
5: Yes, which is very nice. Yeah, my dad used to play racquet, but at eighty two he doesn't yeah. move as quickly as he does anymore and it's nice that he can play with his grandkids, so
1: yeah, and my guess is he beats he his my guess is he beats his grandkids from time to time.
0: Well, maybe. Depending <laughs>
1: on his team he is. Fair fair enough. Thanks for the call. Now I think it's here to stay.
0: Hi Jeff, Tracy Johnson here. Congratulations on a tremendous career and congratulations on your retirement. Thank you for everything you've done for our community and the impact that you've had on the way we look at the issues think about the news and think about the world. I especially appreciate the opportunity to have worked with you first on TMJ4 and then on 620 WTMJ as a fill-in host. You've given me so many opportunities and I can't thank you enough. You deserve the best that retirement has to offer, time with family and friends, and even on the golf course. So congratulations, cheers, and hit them straight.
1: What's going on? Oh, oh, yeah. We had this thing called an election yesterday. First of all, I, I, I want. For the last four years, I have been publicly eating crow because I I understand I did not see President Trump winning in 2016. And anytime we talked about election predictions, many of you would always feel comfortable pointing that out to me. Thank you very much. Also, I I mean, I I acknowledge it. I was like many of the pundits that got it wrong. I, I will say that based on what we are seeing yesterday, and, and what's going on today, I, I believe I have redeemed myself. If you go back and listen to commentary, I first of all, we're going to talk about all the polls. I did not think this was going to be a landslide, and I said so. I said that I thought... Joe Biden would probably eke out a close win. And it looks like, and we'll discuss this in a little more detail, I know it's not what some people want to hear, but it looks like that is going to be the case, a close win. I predicted that there would not be any blue wave at all. And as a matter of fact, you know, I I saw Republican voters coming home in in large numbers, and that is precisely what happened. When we talk about no blue wave, it it really is incredible, especially if you looked at the earlier polls. Put aside the presidential race for a minute. Everybody, everybody thought that the Democrats were going to pick up seats in the House of Representatives, that there would be long coattails with Joe Biden. In fact, that did not happen. And it looks like they might have lost as many as five seats in Congress. Now, Democrats still have a majority and Nancy Pelosi will still be Speaker of the House. But any hope that they had of, of extending their majority d- did not happen happen at all. Interestingly, a local note is Donna Shalala, you know, the former chancellor at UW Madison. She was a first term congresswoman in South Florida she, uh, she lost last night, uh, was one of the Democrats who lost their bid for reelection. So Donna Shalala ends up losing. The Republicans pick up about five seats in Congress. Still not a majority, but I think it surprised a lot of people. Earlier on, they were thinking, gee, maybe the Democrats are going to pick up another five, ten seats. Did not happen. In addition, the Democrats thought that they would be able to take control of the U.S. Senate. And it does not appear that that is happening. As it stands right now, going into the night, it was 5347 Republican um, versus Democrat and Independence, and Bernie Sanders is technically independent, but he he, um, he he's part of the Democratic uh, Party conference. So, 53-47, they needed to swing four votes, or actually three, if Joe Biden ended up winning, because then you'd have the vice president who would be able to break the ties. That does not appear to have happened. As it stands right now... In in called races, and I, I say that because that th- for some reason, some of the networks have been very, very reluctant to make what it seems to me are obvious calls. But right now, it's 46 to 46. Um, there's six seats up for grabs, but here's the deal. There's a guy in Alaska, the Republican running, he's ahead 63 to 31. His name is Sullivan. He's going to win. So that's one seat for the Republicans. Susan Collins in Maine, she's ahead 51 to 42. She is going to win. The Democrats thought she was going to get knocked off. That did not happen. So that's two seats that puts us up to 48. Uh, Purdue in Georgia with 94% of the vote in, he's ahead by about four points. He is in all likelihood going to win. The only thing that would screw that up would be if if somehow he dropped below 50% and there'd have to be a runoff, in which case he'd win. But he's gonna pick that seat up. That's three, that takes you to 50 right there. Um, in North Carolina, Tillis, the Republican incumbent, who was viewed as, as being very, very vulnerable, he's ahead by 100,000 votes, uh, about two point two percentage points ahead, 100,000 votes, 93% of the vote in. I think Tillis is going to win. That's 51. In addition, there's another Georgia seat that's going to go to a runoff, but that's a heavily Republican state. The Republican um, is going to win that one, but probably not until January. So that's going to be five. And then you've got the race in Michigan where the Republican, um, James, is still leading. He's up by about 25,000 votes with 96% of the vote in. That, that one might be too close to call, but one way or the other, it looks like Republicans are going to end up with, best guess, 52 seats, absolute worst-case scenario 51 um you know and and very possible 53 um very possible just this 53 so th- there was not a blue wave at all when that occurred in Wisconsin you no know, we were hearing all sorts of talk about blue wave did not happen at all despite getting outspent 2 to 1 and this is this is one of the most staggering stories about what happened in Wisconsin you had the democrats that were flush with money I mean, I have never seen spending like you saw on, on on these various races. You had assembly races where there was over or close to a million dollars put into the race in an effort to try to I don't know take out Robin Voss. that They spent about a million bucks in trying to defeat Robin Voss. Okay, two years ago he won sixty forty. This year, after having about a million dollars spent against him, he wins 58-42. I mean, it's just, it, it was amazing how much money was thrown around. And at the end of the day, after tens of millions of dollars being spent, that the composition of the state assembly, it went from 63 Republicans and 38 Democrats to 61 Republicans and, um, 39 Democrats. So, I mean, it, it it's just, yeah. Okay, look at all that money. The state Senate, again, millions and millions of dollars put into various races. Um, most of it launched against Republican candidates. Going into the night, it was 1914, 19 st- uh, Republicans, 14 Democrats. At the end of the night, the Republicans, despite being outspent, like two to one, they actually picked up two seats in the Senate. So the Senate is, what, 21 to 12? The Assembly, 61 to 38. So you, you've got, again, an era of divided government that continues. But if you want to talk about, I, I'm not going to describe like the Democratic consultants as being losers, because that's not the case. They made a fortune. They made an absolute fortune. The losers were the people who decided to give money to people with the idea that it was going to be used tilting at windmills and trying to win a bunch of of these seats. And I guess I wonder, next time, two years from now, if you're, I don't know, a Democrat fundraiser, and you go around to some of these big donors and you say, hey, I'd like you, we're going to go after, we're going after Robin Voss, or we're going to run um, after some Assembly candidates, or we're going after this State Senate candidate or whatever. Will you write me a check for $50,000, or will you donate $100,000 to this political action committee? I might, my first question would be, well, what are you gonna do differently this year that you did in 2020 when I re- gave you all this money and you absolutely, completely peed it away, epic fail. So to the extent that there was a blue wave where people were predicting a blue wave, either nationally or on the state level, it did not materialize, which tells me that first of all, Republicans did come home. And secondly, that, that President Trump win, lose, or draw has larger coattails than, than anybody, anybody thought. Cause the thinking was, President Trump is gonna get drubbed, he's gonna get beaten big, and he's gonna take all these Republicans down with him. That did not happen. Trump outperformed the polls on so many different levels. And on top of that, um, that I think helped Republican candidates to go on and win. So, I, I, Look, I understand the way it looks now. Joe Biden is going to be the next president of the United States. But on top of that, what you're going to have is you're going to have the Democrats that control the House of Representatives. You're going to have the Republicans that control the U.S. Senate. And again, I don't know if it's going to be 51 or 52 or 53. But as I've been saying for the last week or so, in some respects, that might be the best news at all for Joe Biden if Joe Biden becomes president. Why are you saying that, Jeff? Well, it's simple. I believe that Joe Biden is at his heart. He's sort of a a center-left Democrat. He's certainly not an Elizabeth Warren or a Bernie Sanders. If the Democrats controlled the U.S. Senate and the House, I think Biden would have incredible pressure put on him to move very, very far to the left, now, with the Republicans controlling the U.S. Senate, th- that's going to be the check on that. You're not going to have a Green New Deal because you're not going to be able to get it through the, the Senate. You're not going to have massive tax increases because you're not going to be able to get it through the, the Senate. You are going to have I – th- I think everybody wants – Everybody wants us to govern. Everybody recognizes that there's things that need to be done, but it's not going to be unchecked with one party in complete control. And candidly, I think that might be one of the best things in the world for Joe Biden because... If you went too far to the left, if you did some of the crazy stuff that I think some of the people in his party were talking about, um, I I think you'd be looking at an electoral debacle two years from now, because I continue to believe that this is a center-right country. By having divided government, what you assure is that you're not going to have radical shifts. And candidly, that might not be the worst thing in the world. The stock market today kind of reflecting that the dow jones industrial average up 684 points the nasdaq up 450 that's uh, a four percent increase and and that's factoring in the likelihood that joe biden is going to be the next president the likelihood that republicans are going to control the u.s senate and the likelihood that the democrats are going to pull the house of representatives i think it's kind of a recognition that all right nothing too crazy is going to happen, and I hope I don't have to eat those words somewhere along the line over the course of the next four years if these results do in fact hold.